0: As we continue in our journey through the book of Luke, this series we call Dear Theophilus, Luke is writing a letter to his friend Theophilus that he intends to be read in the church. And as it's being read in the church, what a great thing for those in Rome, those in the churches around the Near East at the time, and even for us today, to hear him writing to Dear Theophilus, Dear Theophilus. God lover, for all of us who hear this and love God, we are seeking to find a foundation for our faith that we might not be tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine. This is really important for us in 2019. We live in a world where we just seem to want to make up our spirituality. We want to just make up the rules, so to speak, as we go along And the Bible can say whatever we want it to say. We can look at the scriptures and say, well, you know, the world has changed. The culture has changed. We need to read the Bible differently. And yet, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Our God never changes. Therefore, His Word never changes. His expectations of all that He has created have never changed. And His expectations of those who bear His image Never change. His expectations, i want to get off of Luke for just a moment because I just feel it, so I'm going to ride with it a little bit. His expectations have always been for us to be people of truth and love, equal parts truth and love. We can never be loving if we are untruthful, and we do no good carrying a stick of truth if we don't wield it with love. God has told us what He expects of us. We need to listen. Luke is writing this letter to be able to ensure Theophilus and us of the certainty of that which he had been taught. We have been handed a legacy of faith, sound doctrine, the gospel truth, once entrusted to the saints for all time. As we read through the book of Luke, we are reading what God himself has inspired for us. It is useful, it is practical, but more than anything else, it is authoritative. Whether I like it or not, I have to deal with it because it is reality. If there's nothing else that you get from your time at Real Life, whether that is uh, one Sunday or 50 years, I hope you get that the whole concept of faith is really aligning our thoughts, our thinking with God's reality because that is true. There are only two opinions in the universe that, matters, that matter, God's opinion because it is reality and our opinion because it determines what we're going to do with God's opinion and that is the extent to which my opinion matters. Therefore, as we get into this, you don't need my opinion, you need God's Word. So make sure you've got your Bibles open or logged in. Our Wi-Fi stuff is in the program, you can handle that. But if you need a Bible, as Shelly mentioned earlier, there are some in the racks uh, throughout the rows. We also have some in the back if you need some. But you need to hear what God has to say, not what any man has to say. As we are working through this, Jesus now is is once again dining with some Pharisees. It's just so strange to me. They're trying to kill him. He knows they're trying to kill him. But they still keep having dinner together. It sounds a lot like Washington, D.C., doesn't it? It's very similar. So as, as Jesus is speaking with these Pharisees, the situation itself affords him the opportunity to teach. That's a lesson for us in itself. You and I, every day, have opportunities to proclaim the gospel, to bear forth the truth of God's word without having to be a preacher in a pulpit, without having to stand on a street corner proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Every time you go to the gas station or the grocery store or a family gathering or to school or to work, You have an opportunity in every moment of every conversation to reflect the reality of Christ through those relationships. That's what Jesus is doing. Everything that happens, he's on a mission. You and I must also be on a mission. Today, as we look at this concept of giving up everything, Jesus is pretty clear about what he's saying. I want to do my best to help it be clear for you. I have the easiest job in the world. I don't have to add anything to this. God does all the work. I just got to tell the truth. So I want to help you see what he says here. Now, as we go into this, I want to start by putting a picture in your mind. Think, if you would, toward days gone by when explorers would sail across the ocean. They would leave the European coast and and set out on this vast Atlantic, wondering if they could find a way to find glory and fame and vast untold treasure. And every time they did this, every time, when they would sail past that horizon that they knew they were taking their lives into their hands, and there's an inherent concept in that exploration that we need to grab a hold of as we're working through this text. Every time they would leave to go pursue what they saw to be most valuable, they had to leave everything else that they knew behind. Every time, they had to leave the port. They had to actually untie the boat to get out of there. And when they left, families, their homes, everything that they knew was left behind. As you read through this text, I want you to keep that picture in mind as you take hold of this core reality. This is, in a nutshell, kind of a nutshell wording of what Jesus is saying in this passage, what Luke is saying to his readers in this passage, and therefore what we should take from it. Note this. Dennis, I seem a little hot. Am I, is that okay there? Because I'm still getting ring in the monitors here. Okay. Good. Thank you. The core reality is this. Taking hold of Jesus requires letting go of everything else. I, I could not find a more succinct way to say it. I thought maybe I'd try and come up with something clever. I'm not good at clever. So we're going to just be as clear And to the point as we can, because my hope, my prayer, please don't take this the wrong way, by the end of this sermon, is that every person in this room will be wounded and affected. That our toes will be stepped on. Because I know it's been stepping on mine all week. So I hope it steps on yours. Taking hold of Jesus requires letting go of everything else. In other words, following Jesus means trading what I thought was important for what really is important. Let's take a look at the text itself. Luke chapter 14. We're going to take on the whole chapter today because it it fits well to a unit of thought. We're going to look at these 35, I think, verses as we go through it and see how it's couched in the context of everything else that Luke has been recording for us. We'll see how it will springboard us forward into what we're going to see next week as Jesus shares some very specific principles, some very specific parables that carry forth these principles that we're talking about. Let's begin with verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he's being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. If you have a different translation, it may say dropsy, what we might refer to today as edema. He's got a soft tissue swelling that is causing an an abnormal difficulty in his body. Verse 3, Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Now, before we continue reading the rest of this text, we need to stop, don't we? Because many of you already know where I'm going with this. He's told this same story. Not this same story, but the same concept. Repeatedly. Over and over again in the book of Luke, we've seen Jesus show up on the Sabbath, heal somebody, the leaders trip, he confronts them and says, hey, uh, you're missing the point. Early, he's pointing out, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Later, he's pointing out, you're missing out on the idea of the Sabbath. Here, he's talking about the compassion of God. You are caught up. Actually, I'm sorry. Last chapter, he's talking about the compassion of God. Here, he's talking about the fact that you're caught up in your own expectations, your own framework. Let's get you out of that framework and see what God intends. Now, he said this so many times, they don't even answer this time. Okay, we remember what happened last time. Last time, we were humiliated. How about we just sit here and let him do his thing? Seems like a good call. Now, as as we're seeing this, there's a reason that these things are repeated. Every time we see these repetitions in Scripture over and over again, healing on the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath. We've been working through uh, the book of Mark, or we've been talking about working through the book of Mark on, on Wednesday. You've been reading it. We'll continue to break it down. But one of the things that we see over and over again in the book of Mark is the word immediately. This happens, and then immediately something else happens. These repetitions help us to find the structure of the passage. If we want to know what the author is saying, we can see the way that they set this up to see what their intent is. This is not just trying to jump in, find something that's inspirational and nice, makes, makes a nice post on Facebook. We want to find something that actually reflects... The intention of the author to the original hearer to see what God is saying to his people then and now. As we see this this healing on the Sabbath, it's sort of a pillar that holds up the rest of the story, and we can see this unfold before us in chapter 14. Again, it's a great chapter break because it really does cover this unit of thought. Let's pick up up with verse 7. When he, had, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, remember he's dining at the home of a Pharisee. He's not in the synagogue doing this healing. He's at someone's home. <laughs> and he starts out with controversy right out of the gate. He's at their home. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place, whatever's left over. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. I really wanted to use that as our memory verse this week, but it wasn't the core point, so we wanted to kind of stay away. But rest assured, that will be a memory verse at some point as we're going through. Then Jesus said to his host, he's talking to the guest now, he turns to the host. Verse 12, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. That's weird. Let me read that again and make sure I got it right. Correct me if I'm I'm missing this. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection Righteous. Jesus says something very practical. If you think you're more important than you are, you will be humbled and you won't like it. If you take the place of humility and someone then says, oh, you're way more important than that. Let's move you up. You're going to feel good. That's a very practical thing. But then he goes to a very impractical thing and says when you give a, 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 a party... When you invite people, invite those that you shouldn't invite. Invite those that nobody else wants. Invite those who are left out, left back, held down, put out. Because they can't give you anything. And there will be no reward in an earthly way. You are not going to have anything to gain from it except you'll be rewarded by your Father at the resurrection of the righteous. Even the impractical is practical with God. Notice in verse 15, I'm sorry, yes, 15. He continues. He's still in the same setting. He's still in the Pharisee's house, still at the dinner. He's got everybody a little bit confused right now with what he just said. And when one of those at the table with him heard this, He said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. We're not given a lot of clues here as far as why he says this, whether he is trying to get attention or he is caught up in the moment and sees the beauty of what Jesus is saying and just bursts out in exultation. Wow, I get it. It's not about here, it's about there. Blessed is the one who has eternal glory feasting with God rather than down here. Maybe he gets it. Maybe he doesn't, he's trying to win points with Christ. We don't really have a lot of clues because Jesus doesn't rebuke him, he doesn't praise him. He just kind of jumps from that into the next thing. In either case, whether the man was sincere or not sincere, this statement is profound. And it encapsulates much of what Jesus is going to say next. Verse 16, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet. They can relate to that, right? They're at a banquet. And invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I'm doing business, right? I've just made this big purchase. I just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Turning to them, I take it from this that he is still at the dinner and the crowds follow him even to dinner. He goes to somebody's house People are there. They're hanging around listening at the window. What's he going to say? What's he going to say? Is he going to do some other miracle? Is he going to feed all these people with a fish again? Is he going to do something amazing? I just want to see what amazing thing is going on. So wherever he goes, if he goes to see Avengers Endgame, he's got a crowd following him. He's not going to see Avengers Endgame. This is first century. Time travel. Anyhow, sorry. Sorry. They're gathered around. He's here at the dinner. He turns to the crowd now and says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You wonder if the crowds are starting to get smaller right about now. coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off. He'll ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. That's our memory verse for today, so I'm going to read it to you again. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. That's our Lord's favorite way of ending his parables. If you're able to get it, then get it. And if you're not, this isn't for you. Now, as we walk through this together, what Jesus is saying here is not new information. He's condensing it all into one conversation, but he's been saying this straight along. Not only has he been saying it, he's been demonstrating it. From the early book of Luke, we see this. And as Jesus is pursuing what God has for him, he sees the labor he has for the Father as his top priority, the mission he is on as his top priority. More than that, his relationship with the Father, bigger than anything else. Since I'm looking around here and I see you're not really buying it, you don't really believe me. You're not taking this seriously yet. Let's go back and flip through Luke real quick. We're not going to spend a lot of time reading, but we do want to see it. So go all the way back. Right after we get uh, the, the birth narrative and Jesus ends up in the temple, we see that there is activity. So let's go to Luke chapter 3. Actually, let's just look at Jesus in the temple in chapter 2. They're in there for the purification rites required by the law of Moses. Sorry, no, I'm in the wrong one. He's where I wanted to be. I should be better at this by now. 2:41 Every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Now you know the story. Here it is in front of you. As they're there with all the people and all the crowds traveling with the family, it gets over, they leave town and Jesus Is it with them? Three days later, they figure this whole thing out. Maybe they think he's with Uncle Jim. Maybe he's with Aunt Merlin. He's there somewhere. We don't know where he is. They find him at the temple. And Jesus said, didn't you know? I had to be in my father's house. His priorities were not on the things of this world, but on his father's house, his father's will, his father's business, his father's word. John 3, he's baptized by John the baptizer, John the immerser. And in this baptism, John says, Really? You want me to baptize you? You should be baptizing me. No, this is the right thing to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus prioritizes not his reputation or even that people know the truth about him. John gets it. You have no sin. I'm baptizing for repentance. What are you going to repent of? The people will think that you're turning from your sin. Jesus said it's not about that. This is done to fulfill all righteousness so that Jesus would forever be identified with living for God, for doing the will of the Father. That's his priority. His reputation doesn't matter. What matters is truth. We get to chapter 4 and Jesus is tested directly by the devil in the wilderness and he attempts him with these three things. Jesus is fasting, he hasn't eaten, it's 40 days, it's miserable. There is undoubtedly much more temptation, but it's encapsulated in these three things that God has inspired to be recorded for us in Scripture. The devil says to him in verse 3, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Two things that he's attacking as he does throughout this. If you really are who you say you are. He's attacking throughout all of these his relationship with the Father. Then I'm going to appeal to your hunger, to your physical needs. Jesus lets go of those physical needs and says, this isn't about that. This is about fulfilling God's word. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says again, it's been given to me, I can... Give it to anyone I want to, speaking of the, of the authority and splendor of this world. If you worship me, it'll be all yours. Jesus answers in verse 8, it's written, worship the Lord your God, serve him only. It's not about me getting stuff that's going to make me comfortable or advance me in rank. He knows the reality that it's all his anyway. So it's really a matter of timing. He lets go of the now to take hold of the eternal. And then Satan tries to get him to cast himself down from the highest point of the temple and have the angels come and save him. And in verse 12, Jesus answers, It said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So when the devil had finished his tempting, he left him because Jesus was not biting. Why? Our Lord valued reality over fantasy. He valued the things of God over the things of the flesh. He valued what would matter longest and most over what seemed to matter most right now. In the midst of his hunger, his fatigue, his suffering, all his flesh wanted, just like yours and mine, is for this pain to go away. I don't want to feel like this anymore. And the devil jumps on that. Haven't we all been there? That emotional turmoil, I just want this to go away, and I see an exit strategy. This is how I can escape the pain. The devil's there with flashing lights saying, yeah, come this way. And the Lord just quietly says, here's reality. Let go of these earthly things. Take hold of what matters. Jesus does this over and over again throughout his life, and we see, see it continue. He gets um, rejected at Nazareth, his hometown. That could really take him down. He's not sweating it because he's got bigger things, bigger fish to fry, so to speak. They do that a lot in Galilee. Jesus is uh, received by the crowds in some other towns, and he's elevated as a rock star. That's not, that's not his concern at all. He's not interested in the accolades. He's interested in the truth, and he continues on his mission. As we go through all of these things, if you follow through his words, if you follow through his actions, you'll see the same concept. It goes deep. Look at chapter 9. Chapter 9 is a turning point in the book of Luke. It goes from his local and regional ministry outside of Jerusalem to transitioning toward Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem. But at verse 18 through 20, we see this this pivot point. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. And then we see this famous part, also this great confession by Peter, also recorded by Matthew and Mark. What about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Right after that, right after this great epiphany, this wonderful confession of truth, we go into Jesus saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life, as we celebrated last week. And he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father of the, and of the holy angels. Now, in, in Mark's recording of this and Matthew's, Peter immediately after saying, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, When Jesus says, I have to let go of all this stuff because bad things are going to happen, that's God's purpose. Peter can't let go of his expectations. He's like, no, forbid it, Lord. No way, you're not going to the cross. Don't say these things. That's crazy talk. Jesus rebukes him. and goes from, blessed are you, Peter, to get behind me, devil, Satan, opposer. You're thinking of Human stuff, not the will of God. Jesus stays on this same line all the way through. It never varies. His focus is not on what seems important, but what is important. Back to chapter 14. Let's kind of blast through some of this, and we'll see it. Lay out for us, and I'm going to do my best to uh, I'm going to do my best to not go off on rabbit trails that pique my attention, so that we can stay focused on what God's saying here. Taking hold of Jesus means letting go of a variety of things, and as we walk through this, Jesus kind of lays some of these out. First, taking hold of Jesus means letting go of my religious, philosophical, and cultural framework. It means letting go of my religious, philosophical, and cultural framework. As he's meeting with them, it's the Sabbath. There's a man suffering with this edema, and Jesus goes right to it. Is it lawful or not for me to heal this guy? They don't know what to say. They keep silent. But you know what they're thinking, and they're thinking the same things they've been thinking. Jesus heals the man, and then he confronts them with the basic reality of how things work. If you got a kid that falls in a well, if you got a donkey or an ox that falls in a well on the Sabbath, you're not worried about what day it is. You're going to get them out. That's how it works. Get rid of the trap of thinking that, that following Jesus or following God is about rules. Now, there are rules. We don't come to church naked. That's really important. I, I really feel strongly about that rule. But it's not about rules. It's about reality. And when we have rules or rituals that reflect that reality, then we are reckoning reality rightly. But if we don't, if we start to get wrapped up in what my culture has told me, what my philosophy teaches me, what my religious background tells me, then this framework begins to drive my understanding of truth, and it distorts it. Instead of looking at God's Word as the mirror, it's like going to a funhouse mirror, and I see all these funny different shapes that come out that are shaped after my own way of thinking, my own understanding, rather than trusting in the Lord with all my heart whether I get it or not. It's crucial. It's foundational. Taking hold of Jesus means letting go of my religious, philosophical, and cultural framework. Notice in verses 7 through 11, we see that taking hold of Jesus means letting go of my pride, reputation, and hunger for human approval. It means taking hold of or, uh, taking hold of Jesus means letting go of my pride, reputation, and hunger for human approval. Verse 7, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who who humble themselves will be exalted. If you're seeking the best seat now, if you're seeking to pump up your pride, your self-esteem, you could exchange those words pretty adequately. We've had a lot of push for self-esteem in our world in the last three decades. I would submit to you that it is all false. It is all deceitful. It is all dangerous. A lack of self-esteem is not the problem we face in our humanity. A lack of (laughs) self-esteem is a starting place. When we esteem ourselves, when we think we deserve better, when we think we deserve better, anything but hell, then we have completely missed the message of the Bible. There is no good news in Christ until we recognize the bad news in the reality of our sinfulness that has separated us from God irreparably, irreconcilably. I can't do anything to fix it. That alone should shatter our pride. When we recognize that Jesus came to die in our place, to take away the wretchedness that is me, when he looked at me and said, Ziger is a dirt bag, and I'm going to take that from him. I'm going to die in his place because he bears the image. That had nothing to do with me being good enough or smart enough. It had nothing to do with whether or not people like me. It had nothing to do with my performance or being able to earn it or surprise myself with how good and cool I am. Yay. None of that. The reality is, when I see that mercy, when I see what it costs, this is why Good Friday is so important. When I see the cost of the Savior, the precious one, bleeding and dying in my place? Where is my self-esteem? Where does my self-worth belong? But at the foot of the cross, cast down like a crown that I no longer see as having any value in itself, so that I can take hold of I'm going to take hold of Jesus. I've got to let go of my pride, my reputation, what people think of me, my hunger for human approval. That performance trap we get into to be the best at something. And I love competition. I love sports. I love to to excel or try to excel. I love to, to see those things. I love to watch my kids do what they do when my daughters dance or or. My sons do whatever it is they do, sports sportsy kind of things. I get excited, and I love it. But it's so easy to get caught up in this trap of needing to be the best, needing to be seen as the best even more. When I go to my slow-pitch church softball game, Clay's already going to laugh at me. And I go up to bat, and that big, fat softball comes in nice and slow, and I swing and miss again. And I strike out. I hate it. And as much as I hate striking out because I hate failing, what I hate even more is that everybody's sitting there watching. I'm just being honest. This is true confessions right here. Don't tell anybody. we got to get rid of that. It has to not matter anymore what people think of us. The only thing that can matter is what the Lord thinks of us. Taking hold of Jesus means letting go, my, go of my pride, reputation, and hunger for human approval. Third, we see in verses 12 to 14 that taking hold of Jesus means letting go of my sense of reciprocity. Good word, use that often this week. My sense of reciprocity, fairness, or reward. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a lunch or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors, anybody who can do something for you in return. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. It's not about reciprocity. If I do this, you're going to do that. This is actually an Old Testament concept in a lot of ways. When we're told even then to give, to lend without expecting to get paid back. If you're expecting to get paid back, you're going to be really disappointed when somebody doesn't pay you back. So it's a very practical thing. If I lend it, if you pay me back, great. If you don't pay me back, fine. It's whatever. Treat it as a gift. Very practical in the Old Testament in the Proverbs. Jesus is saying, stop focusing on what's fair and what's right. Stop focusing on the reward that you deserve. I should be treated better than this. Don't you remember how I took care of you? Don't you remember when I invited you to that dinner? Why don't you ever invite me to dinner? Let go of that stuff. Seek your reward in heaven. Matthew 6 delineates that. We're not going to turn there, but... Uh, If you go through Matthew 6, you're going to see the same theme over and over again. We just saw Jesus talking about it a few chapters ago in Luke. saying, stop worrying about the things of this world. Stop worrying about your provision. Don't fear, man. And don't get caught up in what you need or don't need. And don't get caught up in how well you've saved your money to live responsibly and take care of yourself. Do those things. But don't let that become your priority. That's a dangerous place." I need to let go of my sense of reciprocity, fairness, or reward. Verses 15 to 20 show us that taking hold of Jesus means letting go of my earthly concerns, no matter how important they seem. Now, in verses 15 to 20, Jesus is talking about the invitation to the great banquet of God. It's clear that that's his entire intent, is that God is holding this Great banquet, the wedding feast of the Lamb. The kingdom is being offered. You're being invited to be a part of this. And with this invitation, there are those, this is implicit in the parable, there are those who are expected to be invited. Those who are naturally on the list. He's giving a picture here of the people of Israel, the chosen people, those who belong to God. And as they are invited, as they would expect, they've got too much going on. I don't have time. I'm busy. It's an agrarian society, so buying a field is a big deal. Most of you in the room here aren't farmers, so it's, okay, it's a deal, but it's not as big a deal as when this is not just a large expenditure of money. It's a large expenditure of money upon which your livelihood hinges. I just bought I just bought out this new business. Or I just we just bought a new church building and it's got us all occupied. I don't really have time for your banquet. Or the excitement, even of being married. The the whole wedding concept is a big deal in that culture. It's not just a let's have a big reception. It's like a week long festival. This is a thing, right? We got everybody going on. But there's more than that. There's a relationship that we're developing, right? I just got married. You're going to take me away from my wife? Did I say I was going to take you away from your wife? I invited you to a banquet. She can be your plus one, but just get here. Get here. We get so caught up in earthly things that are so important. My business, my, my schooling, my kids, their sports, my sports. It matters so very, very much, and then you die. And it matters not at all. And you show up for the banquet. And the master who invited you says, where were you when I called? You were too busy for me doing all these other things. I gave you a family, a church family, and you chose to prioritize other things. You chose to prioritize a flesh family, but not enough to bring them to the banquet with you just enough to go to their banquet instead of mine. Sorry, your invitation is revoked. This is hard stuff for us to grasp. Not because it's difficult to understand, but because it's difficult to swallow. Taking hold of Jesus means letting go of my earthly concerns, no matter how important they seem. Verses 21 to 24. Show us that taking hold of Jesus means letting go of my concept of status or rights. It means letting go of my concept of status or rights. Verse 21, the servant came back and reported this to the master. Talking about all of these who had their excuses, they couldn't be here. The servant came back reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and to bring in the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. Sir, we've done this. Still room. Kingdom of God is like that mustard seed that becomes a big tree. There's room for nesting in the branches. It's big. There's room for all who will come. Verse 23, the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Get those who are of no reputation. Get those who don't belong here. Get those who are outside of our our circle of influence. Those who are outside of the family. Those who are not part of the nation. Reach them. Because all of those who had that special position, who were invited and chose everything else, they will never taste one bit of my banquet. They're not going to be here. There is in this a rejection of the nation of Israel, though not all of the people of Israel. Those who are Abraham's seed by faith, just like the rest of us, enter in. But guys, there is no special status. There's no special background. There's no social standing or privileged position that gets us closer to God. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks you were born on. It doesn't matter where you came from, what your skin color is, what your income is, where you live, how well you've lived. It doesn't matter how much you've sinned or what ways you've sinned. Drop it all at the foot of the cross and come to Jesus. Everybody who comes with that invitation gets in. Nobody who thinks the rest of this is important gets in. This is why elsewhere Jesus tells us that it's more difficult for a camel to get through the eye of a needle, you can explain it away all the ways you want, it's impossible, than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Not because rich people don't know God, but because rich people got stuff. And if I can rely on my stuff, if I hold on to my stuff, then I can't take hold of Jesus. So it's hard. It's hard for somebody who has things in this life to be able to let go of them. If you have a happy family and everything is good, it can be really hard to let go of that family and take hold of Jesus. If you have a good reputation, it can be really hard to share the truth of Jesus Christ with other people for fear that people won't look at you the same way. If you are able to sustain yourself through your own efforts, your own gainful employment, it's really easy to think, I've got life figured out and those other people, they just aren't doing it right. And miss out on the entire character of Christ. Good is it if we gain everything but lose our own soul? Taking hold of Jesus means letting go of my concept of status or rights. I need also to let go, as we see in verses 25 and 26, of my most meaningful relationships, even my family. Large crowds are traveling with him. He turns to them and says, if anybody comes to me and doesn't hate those who are closest to you, you can fill in the blanks. You can, you can put in whatever names apply. The point is, if any relationship, the most meaningful relationships you have, if that's more important than Christ, this isn't for you. You're not a part of it. You cannot be His disciple. Even your own life, Taking hold of Jesus means letting go of my most meaningful relationships, even my family. It doesn't mean you don't have your family. It doesn't mean you live as a hermit. It doesn't mean you reject your family. It means you don't prioritize anyone for any reason over Christ. I ain't going to hell for you or anybody. I choose and everything else, man, I love you, and if you want to come with me, great. I want you to come with me. We should be passionately seeking the salvation of our loved ones. That should be a driving force in our lives. But if they won't come, don't hang back. Perhaps the greatest English uh, book ever written outside of the King James translation of the Bible is uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And the very concept of the book this Christian gets a, a, a vision, a, a, an impression, a realization that the city of destruction in which he lives is going to face judgment, and I've got to get out of here. This overwhelming understanding that I must flee and seek the celestial city. And his wife and his children and his neighbors think he's nuts. But he's got to go. I want you to come with me. We're not coming. I'm going anyway. I have to. I have to seek the truth. I have to seek Him. We too must turn away from any relationships that drag us down spiritually. Not things that hurt your well-being. That's different. In fact, that's our next point. Verse 27, we see that. Continuing from 26 into 27, taking hold of Jesus means letting go of my life and my well-being. Taking hold of Jesus means letting go of my life and well-being. I cannot prioritize my own physical or emotional health higher than obedience to Jesus Christ. I cannot. I cannot. There are no options that allow for us to protect ourselves, to save our lives, to say, you know what? I just, I can't witness these people anymore. It just takes too much out of me. I can't serve anymore. I'm burning out. It takes too much from me. If you're burning out in that way, it's because you've prioritized the things of this world over the things of heaven. Now, that doesn't mean don't take care of yourself. Jesus took aside time to get away, to be alone with just him and his Father to rest. He took a nap in the boat while the storm's coming. It's not about being foolish. But every time that Jesus was trying to get away for, dare I say it, some me time, which was always we time because his father was with him. But every time that Jesus did that and there was a need, he let his own self-preservation go. He let his own well-being go to take care of the needs of others. We're taught just the opposite of that. Far too often in churches, I'm sad to hear it, but it's true. Far too often in churches, we teach a psychological gospel, a self-help gospel. That's no gospel at all. Jesus says very clearly, you've got to not just... Not just let go of these relationships, which are like like hatred in comparison to your love for the Lord, but even your own life. You need to even hate yourself by comparison to your love for the Lord. That's the opposite of what we hear, isn't it? How many times have you seen on social media, you can't love anybody else till you love yourself? La, la, la. That's garbage. It's unscriptural and untrue. Let it go. That is sinful thinking. Our nature is to love ourselves. And even our harmful behaviors toward ourselves come out of that. It's a distortion of that. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Let go. Put the focus on Him. He will sustain you. He will carry you. Taking hold of Jesus means letting go of my life and well-being. Notice how very clear he is in this. and He backs it up with his own behavior. It's consistent in his teaching. And those that he's saying it to will in very short order actually have to put it to work in their lives. Many of them, including all of the apostles, will be martyred. John eventually dies as an old man. But he's already arrested, imprisoned, facing suffering. The Apostle Paul, as he's writing his letters, Philippians, this is his most joy filled letter. I read from that earlier uh, during our worship time. And as he's writing this joy filled letter, he's chained up. And there's no part of that that he regrets. Following requires suffering, it requires it but no regrets. You'll be paid back more than you ever imagined. He gives us this summary and conclusion in verses 28 to 23. Let's read it together. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation or not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Before you get into your project, before you commit to it, make sure you can actually do it. Verse 31, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with the men that he's got to oppose the one coming against him with more? If he's not able, he's going to send a delegation to try to get peace. Verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now that can seem confusing. Well, the king's not giving up everything he had. He's seeking peace. The point being, in, in both of these little word pictures that he gives, you need to understand all that I've said before this. If you're going to follow me, you need to know what it means to follow me. I'm telling you up front what it will cost. Before you jump in with both feet, understand this is not culturally acceptable It's not going to in any way be an easy ride. You're not going to feel good about it. The the health and wealth prosperity gospel is a heinous lie from the devil. I don't think I said that clearly enough. It is a heinous lie from the devil and has nothing to do with the scriptures. Not one bit. Because if that is true, then Jesus is most cursed above all. No, we are called to suffer. Note this. Before you commit, know what you're getting into. This is his conclusion. Disciples follow with eyes wide open. Disciples follow with eyes wide open. This is one of the flaws of the the seeker-driven movement of the 80s and 90s. And, And today, we see it a lot. We want to tailor things to make church more palatable to people. Church isn't supposed to be palatable to people. We're not looking at the color of the carpet when we're running to a rescue mission because we've got no place else to go. When you're seeking cover under fire, you're not looking for a place of comfort. You're looking for a place of safety. Now, I'm all for trying to make things connect. And we don't always connect in the same ways. So we do the best that we can with what we have to connect people with reality, to connect the reality of God with the realities of life. That's really important. But guys, we gotta do it openly. Jesus mints us no words. If you're gonna follow me, you better die because that's what's coming. Die to self, be raised to new life. Notice the last portion here in verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. This is the connection from verses 1 through 6 to the end here. The Pharisees are missing out on the Sabbath. They're the leaders of the people, they're the truth bearers of the time. They are supposed to be representing God accurately, teaching the people. And he's telling them, look, if you don't do what you were meant to do, you're garbage. Literally. You're of no use. We don't keep garbage around, we throw it out. Mark this down. That which does not fulfill its purpose is thrown out. We need to ask ourselves that. Am I garbage? Am I in danger of being thrown out because i failed to fulfill my purpose? Am I letting go of this life to take hold of Jesus? Or am I trying to hold on to Jesus with one hand while I'm holding on to the world with another? That doesn't work. James wrote that in chapter 4 of his letter. Man, don't you get it? Being friends with the world costs you being God's friend. You can't do both. Over and over we see this repeated. Jesus says here that religious folks who are not all in, who fail to fulfill their calling as sold-out ambassadors of Christ in this world, are literally garbage. Is that what you want to be? Christ demands our all. Nothing more, nothing less. We can't earn Him. We can't impress Him. That's beyond our ability doesn't ask anything more. We can't claim Him and cling to anything else. That is beneath His glorious worth. Jesus is all we could ever need, but we cannot take hold of Him without letting go of everything else. I want to challenge you to surrender everything to Jesus. As we wrap up, the band's going to come forward and we're going to sing... This hymn of challenge that most all of you are familiar with. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. And I would encourage you, I would challenge you to be able to make that right now a prayer from the depths of your heart. Not just singing a song, but surrendering to Him everything. Lord, I'm, I'm letting go of everything else so I can take hold of you. If you've never come into a relationship with Jesus Christ before, you've never trusted in him alone for your eternal life, you could do that right now. It's as simple as, Lord, I'm yours. Save me. I'm giving myself over to you, trusting that what you did on the cross for me by dying in my place and rising from the dead is all that can ever be done, all I will ever need, all I can ever ever have as my claim to life. So I'm dying to me right now. And I want to be alive to you. If that is your heart, Jesus said anyone that comes to him will never be turned away, will never be cast out. Paul told us that if we confess Him with our mouths, if we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, speaking what is in us publicly, if He is our Lord, our Master, our Ruler, He's calling the shots. I've let go. I've taken hold of Him. And if we believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, that we'll be saved. That's where you are. Jesus says, come to me. I'm gonna make you my child. Perfectly accepted, perfectly forgiven, the slate wiped clean, a new creation in Christ, because the one who knew no sin became sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God. He already purchased the gift. It's completely paid for. You just have to receive it, unwrap it, and embrace it. I'll close with this thought. Stealing it from John Piper. Christ is glorified in you when he is more precious to you than all that life can give or death can take. Let's pray. Father, we want to surrender all to you right now. We want to be yours from the inside out. No religious construct, no philosophical framework, no cultural comfort, just you. Whatever it costs, Lord, Let us give it, knowing that we're not really sacrificing anything at all. Father, remind us that we're never fools when we give up what we can't keep to gain what we can't lose. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus.